It was a very hot day, probably the hottest day since he'd arrived in India. At 38 degrees with 35% humidity, his body could no longer reduce its temperature through sweat. The power was down, and a desperate band of young boys had just stolen the generator that had been powering the AC of his medical clinic. Possibly the last relatively cool place in town. As the temperature rose higher and higher, elders and infants dying all around, he made the decision to lead those still standing to a nearby lake, hoping the water would be cooler than the air. The next morning, he crawled out of the lake, his limbs like cooked spaghetti draping his bones. Everyone else had been slow-boiled to death. Set in 2025, this catastrophic near future forms the opening chapter of Kim Stanley Robinson's best-selling science fiction novel, The Ministry for the Future. But though the event itself is fictional, the environmental science that inspired it is real. We are living through the Earth's sixth mass extinction, the death of the coral reef, extreme droughts, flash floods, and changing weather patterns. Still, many countries refuse to commit to even the most conservative emission reduction strategies. And just like the deadly Indian heat wave described in Robinson's novel, the developing countries that bear the least of the blame are predicted to suffer the worst of the consequences. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Climate change is the most important story of the 21st century, perhaps the greatest challenge our civilization will ever face. And those in the global south will suffer disproportionately from its effects. Today we explore what the future holds for emerging markets in the upheaval to create a post-carbon world. Is there hope? Joining our panel are Professor Cameron Hepburn, Director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment, and Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Oxford. Mary Robinson, former President of Ireland and United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, whose recent book Climate Justice urgently addresses the problem. And finally, we welcome Lauren Ramsey, managing partner of the Bigta Group. Kieran Nandra, senior client portfolio manager for Bigta Asset Management's Emerging Equities team, moderates the discussion. with, I'd like to ask each one of you, how optimistic are you in the role that emerging countries will play in mitigating climate change? Mary, perhaps I could ask you to start uh, with that question. Thank you. I'm a prisoner of hope as chair of the elders, so I can't use the word optimistic, but I am hopeful. And I'll tell you what makes me even more hopeful. A report has just come out of the UN Economic Commission for Africa about African countries, and it's called Building Forward Together. It's by Vera Songway and her colleagues. Vera is a very good friend. And it really is quite hopeful about the potential as long as developing countries can get the investment, 
and the skills and the training for the clean energy. Because unfortunately, African countries as others have found oil and gas and they have coal. So if they don't get the capacity to go the green way, then oil and gas companies in particular, the fossil fuel companies, are very, very keen to exploit there as they're being shut out of the developed world. So it's a real dilemma. And the priority for developing countries, of course, is development. It's to bring their people out of poverty. And that's very understandable. But unless they are enabled, it will be hard for them. No industrialized country built their economy on clean energy. It's new. It's difficult. It's expensive. The upfront costs are expensive. So unless we can understand that need for solidarity, I'm worried about how developing countries can have the faith to go green from the beginning, if I could put it that way, in building their economies. Laurent, can I pass the question over to you as well, please? I've always been an optimistic person, so I'll, 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 I'll stand there. Uh, if you look at the CO2 emissions per capita, obviously the US is probably the, the worst offender, but on an absolute basis, you know, emerging markets and, and, and Asia in particular, I think represent more than 50% of CO2 emissions. So, so the fact is without emerging market doing something about it, we're not going to reach our, our goals. And there is probably an element of, of self-preservation uh, in that, you know, they depend a lot on agriculture. Uh, they often are in places where the climate is warmer and that impacts productivity. They have large coastal areas. You can see, you know, think of many large cities on coastal areas, you know, in India or in, in China, you know, Tianjin or Hong Kong or, or Shanghai or, 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 or Mumbai. And they have, you know, more poverty. So without them being part of the solution, they're only going to make their problems bigger. So I'm optimistic because I hope that that's the incentive to force the change in the contribution of emerging markets. Thank you. And Karen, can I ask you for your, your views on this? Thanks, Kieran. Let, let me pick up where Laurent left off, because I think he makes a very good point, actually. In a sense, you don't need optimism here. Realism takes you to analysing the self-interest of the big emerging market economies. And if you look at those economies, whether they're China, India, Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, you know, Nigeria, Argentina, Brazil, these big emerging market economies, increasingly have a strong self-interest in taking action on climate change, partly because while Mary, of course, is right that clean energy has been historically expensive, the cost reductions that we've seen the last decade, we've seen the last few years, have just been so striking that in many of these emerging economies now, you're, you're at the point where it makes economic sense. And even if we're not quite there in some cases, the marketplace takes a forward view. Are you really going to sink our capital into a 40-year-long coal plant that's going to be out of the money within five years or possibly even less? So I think actually it's less a question of optimism happily, finally, after you know I've certainly been working on this area for over 20 years, and more a question of realistic economic self-interest that is uh, directing capital where it needs to now start to flow. Now that we have your, I think what I can term your realistically optimistic views on the role of emerging countries in facing this issue, maybe we can just take a step back a little bit and just try to establish the nature of the climate change issue. And so for there, Cameron, I mean, your, your position as director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment and professor of environmental economics at Oxford, 
that role very, very specifically focuses on climate change. So can I ask you, when did you first realise that this was a problem that could no longer be ignored? And what has been the key purpose of your research so far? I grew up in the Australian outback and you have a, a, a close and strong connection with nature. It wasn't until I started to become a bit more analytical within my university studies that I recognised the significance of climate change. So, you know, the, the Smith School does work across the board from climate to water to biodiversity to and and actually all of these environmental problems are interlinked you could potentially solve quote climate change and wipe out humanity because you've undermined biodiversity uh you equally we have the other sustainable development goals that we need to be addressing so understanding that we've got a kind of systems of systems problem here is very significant and then within our school, the focus of our research is, is very practical, very applied. How do we shift the economic system globally and the financial system globally so that it's aligned with sustainability? So that rather than being, you know, capitalism being a force for destruction of nature, it's a force for the preservation of nature, which of course it can be. I mean, there's no intrinsic reason why we have to go about our lives damaging nature when actually there's an awesome amount of human ingenuity, intellect and ideas that can reorient the way we do things so that they're in harmony with nature. You've touched on it a little bit, you've spoken about obviously the biodiversity, climate change, etc. and the differences there. Maybe just take a step back and just lay out the scene for our audience. So obviously climate change is a very familiar phrase for, for many of us, but what does it mean for you in particular? What have been the main causes? And to put it very, very bluntly, can we even fix this? Yes, we can address the root causes. Well, let me come back to that later. So what is climate change? Well, it's, it's the fact that we're putting gases up into the atmosphere that trap additional heat, that warm the planet, that change the climate, that lead to changes in precipitation, rainfall patterns, so that you get more floods in some areas, more droughts in other areas. Because there's more energy on Earth, when you trap this heat, you're getting more and more intense hurricanes and other extreme events, more bushfires, etc. So these are the consequences. I think in the popular imagination, climate change is linked to things like use of plastics and recycling. And it's not that there's no connection, but of course these things all interconnect. But you know, fundamentally, it, it is the use and combustion of fossil fuels that is driving climate change. And then, Kieran, to your second question, can we solve it? There's a lot of inertia in our economic system, which, as Mary pointed out, has been built on fossil fuel combustion. It doesn't have to be that way. We get vast amounts of incoming clean energy effectively for free from the sun and from the tides and from the wind. And so this challenge fundamentally is about using human ingenuity to harness that clean energy and to reorient and rewire actually our economies around the amazing amounts of energy that we have accessible to us and increasingly accessible in a way that's very cheap because we've done the material science to capture the incoming photons from the sun at very low cost. So yes, it, it can be addressed. I mean, what I guess I'm, I'm avoiding saying is that it's too late, unfortunately, for us to avoid all of the impacts. I mean, they're already there and they're going to get bigger and they will get bigger because we're not going to stop our emissions tomorrow. It's not probably going to be even 10 years before we stop emitting fossil fuels. So, so in a sense, no, we can't stop the impacts of climate change. And quite a lot of work now has to go into 
the resilience of our economies, how we adapt to those impacts. And actually, in the end, we're going to have to suck CO2 and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere to, to try to stabilize things uh, within a couple of decades. So it's a complicated problem, but we are making good progress. Mary, can I just ask, in terms of your experience as both former president of Ireland and current advocate in the climate fight, how feasible are some of the targets that have been set and in pre kind of previous agreements, etc.? Um, do these targets actually go far enough or do you think they will also be made, made stronger? I think we definitely need to make the targets stronger using the two frameworks this year. So I'm a very supportive of the 30 by 30 by 2030 initiative. I'm a champion for nature in the Convention on Biodiversity to have 30% of the land and 30% of the oceans protected overall and to do that in a way that helps nature-based solutions. And then that we have all countries and all corporations and all cities and all communities commit to be net zero by emissions by 2050. Uh, interestingly, Ireland has yesterday published a climate action bill, which actually not just commits us, but commits us to five-year budgets. And we're already saying, how are we going to do this? It's going to be a big challenge, but at least at last, we're asking those questions and every country has to ask those questions. Can I just also just focus on the role of emerging markets in this fight as well? Cameron, how would you define an emerging country? Are they more at risk of suffering from climate change? And if so, how would you see these effects developing relative uh, to the West? There's no standard definition of an emerging market, but you know, what we have in mind are the economies in between you know, the rich or developed world and those that are least developed. And many of these economies are actually quite central to the climate challenge. As I say, we're talking China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, often with very large populations, growing prosperity, growing environmental impact. It's very important for the whole world that they take strong action. And thus, it's also important for themselves because they're also quite exposed. You know, as Lohong was saying earlier, you think about the locus of prosperity across India and China, it's often, you know, it's your Shanghai's and your Hong Kong's and your Mumbai's, then they're, they're not exactly happily sitting safely up on top of a mountain somewhere. And actually, even if you are on top of a mountain, you, you're exposed in different ways to hundreds of millions of people who are, get their water from glaciers that are melting. Uh, you've got desertification that is increasing in, in these various parts of the world. They're exposed. And some of our work that we did joint with Pictay last year showed just how exposed some of these emerging market economies could be without globally strong action in terms of loss of GDP. And we've had some good news and some not so good news recently. I read yesterday about India's largest coal company now committing to moving rapidly into clean energy and literally phasing out coal, which is a really good news story from India. But if you look at the five-year plan that China is just adopting, it doesn't actually address the commitment that President Xi made at the General Assembly that China would be carbon neutral by at least 2060, meaning hopefully before 2060. And yet coming out of COVID more rapidly than other countries, they're not actually aligning their recovery with that commitment. On that point, so I wanted to actually bring Laurent as well. 
Is the financial world also under some sort of pressure to reassess its structures, especially when it comes to, for example, that kind of performance risk equation? Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, you know, the days where we would just look at investing with these two parameters of performance and risk are, are gone. I think there is a now a tri-dimensional world where, where you need to look at impact. And, and, and that's probably for three reasons. First, as an investor, our role acting on a, as a fiduciary for our clients is to generate performance for them. And to do that repeatedly over time, you need to analyze any factors that can have a material impact on the price of financial assets. And I think today, nobody's going to challenge the fact that the environment, uh, some social aspects and governance issues do not have a material impact on financial assets. They do. Therefore, if you want to do our job properly, we need to actually integrate those analysis when we make our investment decisions. And, and the other things affecting our industry is obviously the, the big competition of, of very large passive investment managers. And being able to be an active owner, being able to engage with companies and to accelerate the transition is a key competitive advantage for active asset managers. So simply from a provider of financial services perspective on the office side, I think it makes complete sense. Now on the demand side, clients are asking for us, again, acting as a fiduciary of their assets to take into account positive and negative externalities when we invest, to invest with purpose, whether they're individual clients or institutional clients. I mean, we do not have now one interaction with a client when we don't touch upon those concepts and, and, and the uh, ESG preferences of clients, which actually will come into law very soon in Europe. And that brings you to the third element, which is the regulator. The regulator is accelerating that change. If you look at uh, the momentum created by the EU action plan uh, and the momentum it has created in the financial industry is just massive. And I think it's, you know, we're counting months, if not weeks, before other regulators follow suit. So definitely, I think we are in, a, in an environment where we need to look at return, risk and impact. Uh, Laurent, are you finding that interest in impact extends globally, geographically? So is it led by Europe or is this of strong interest when you are in emerging market sort of discussions as well? So very timely question. I, I think, I mean, Europe led the way and I think there is an element of first mover advantage when it comes to regulation. I think that obviously uh, the US is on the path to follow pretty quickly. And also Asia, we just not later than, than yesterday and this morning, we won a big mandate for an environmental strategy from a very large US pension plan. And this morning from a very big um, Korean um, uh, sovereign fund. So the appetite is there. The appetite is growing very, very strongly, irrespective of geography. Born in the central highlands of Kenya in 1940, Wangari Mathai had a lifetime of firsts. She was the first African woman to receive a Nobel Peace Prize, the first in East and Central Africa to complete a PhD, the first to chair a university department, and the first to be appointed a professor. A hero to environmentalists all over the world, Mathai founded the Greenbelt Movement, fighting against vested interests to stop deforestation and soil erosion. In the words of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, she thought globally and acted locally. To date, her organization has enlisted grassroots communities to plant more than 51 million trees. If you'd like to hear more inspiring women who have launched bottom-up climate change solutions across a range of industries, 
do listen to Mary Robinson's podcast, Mothers of Invention, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I would like to turn our discussion, if possible, to the core of what is driving the climate fight movement, and that's the grassroots, the living, breathing people in these emerging regions. So, Mary, if I can turn to you, you've had an incredible career. You've gone from politics to advocating for human rights, and you've now written a book on climate justice. How and why did that happen? Well, I came late to realising the very real impact, negative impact that the climate crisis is having on human rights right across the board. The rights that matter so much if you don't have them in particular, rights to food and water, health, education, shelter, but also right to life, a right to live in your own country and not have to migrate because of climate pressures. And so it wasn't until I did some work in African countries and learned the justice dimensions. So perhaps I can speak about those briefly because they need to be on the table Even when we're talking about emerging markets, we're also talking about very poor populations in those markets. And we know that climate change disproportionately and much earlier affects the poorest countries, the poorest communities, the small island states, the indigenous peoples. And within that, there's a second layer of the gender dimensions that women have different social roles, different access to credit, different rights, maybe no land rights, etc. A third one is the intergenerational injustice that young people all around the world, including in emerging markets, are are talking about. And the fourth one is one I touched on earlier in a different way, but it's, it's a very important one, and that is the injustice of the different pathways to development. Industrialized countries, we built our economies on fossil fuel. We now have a clear obligation to wean ourselves off as rapidly as possible, but with just transition, remembering the workers in coal and oil and gas, and in Ireland, peat so that they and their communities are also part of that future. And developing countries have to develop without emissions because if they go the dirty route, they will be affected earlier and worse. And that's the injustice. It's a racial injustice as well. It's an injustice that affects the brown, black, and indigenous peoples of the world disproportionately all over the world. And then the fifth injustice is the injustice to nature herself, the the loss of biodiversity, the extinction of species. And I think that justice lens is more and more important precisely because it has been exposed by COVID. COVID-19 has exacerbated all of the inequalities from racial inequality to poverty inequality to gender inequality to the inequality of being marginalized, having a disability, being indigenous, etc. And I think young people in particular are very aware and want that intersectionality to be brought out. And I think grassroots movements are now forming round climate justice. That's what they talk about and march for and children strike for from school. And I think this is really important. And I would say also, and this is an important point when we talk about emerging economies, we will not get a good result in Glasgow in COP26 unless we listen to the voices of the very poorest countries and the small island states. That's how we got the Paris Agreement. It was the high ambition group that understood the importance of having 1.5 degrees mentioned in the text, that the goal would be to stay well below two degrees and work for 1.5 degrees. And that high ambition coalition was led by the Marshall Islands, led by Tony de Brum, whom I knew well as a friend, the foreign minister, who died shortly after Paris. 
Long, so I want to bring you in here because I've heard you say that investors have one of the most or perhaps is the most important role to play in reversing climate change. So perhaps building on what Mary has just been speaking about, do you mean investors as a whole or do you think that individual investors can actually drive up change? I think it's the same thing. I think final investors are like individual consumers. They define demands and they can change demand and therefore influence what's on offer. The financial industry is simply aggregating the demand from clients. Therefore, I think it's exactly the same thing. We can influence the appetite for financial products. And, and actually, if you look at the role of the financial industry, which is to take our clients' assets, our client savings, and allocate them, and in doing so, financing the real economy, we have a huge leverage to feed or to starve companies, or actually any issuers, based on their ESG practices. So I think there's a massive potential for consumers to influence and to accelerate these changes. Cameron, can I ask what your thoughts on this as well? Do you agree with Mary and Laurent? So in an earlier TED talk, you had mentioned that you know, individual actions will instigate collective change. Do you still believe that and why? Yes, I do. I mean, I've got good friends who I respect deeply who make the point that any individual action isn't going to do anything taken in isolation. And, um, you know, will the planet notice if I change my light bulbs and I change my boiler? But if those actions are part of a much wider viral movement and they end up being imitated and you can spread the word and amplify what you're doing, then one 16-year-old Swedish teenager can, in fact, change the world. Now, not everybody's going to be the next Greta Thunberg, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth, uh, in your own community, doing what you can do and making sure that you're telling others about what you're doing and opening up these conversations. Mary makes the point so powerfully that actually the concepts of justice are worth fighting for in and of themselves, but they're also instrumentally useful to help us to deliver the change that we need from a natural justice point of view as well, because it's these stories and these emotions, dare I say, perhaps more so than the sort of science and economics that we do at this point, that is going to move the needle. So yes, individual actions do matter. I mean, I think it's also important to take a lens to ask, where are these sensitive intervention points in the system where a small action might snowball into into something bigger and try and be as strategic as you can, but don't give up. Cameron, I'd like to build on your individual action because the climate crisis is so important and so urgent that every one of us should take three steps. And the first step is to make it personal in your life. And that's by doing what you were saying, by recycling more carefully, maybe changing your diet, doing something. The second step is to get angry about those with more responsibility and use your voice and your vote or join organizations, but make a noise about governments, corporations, investment groups, cities that need to be doing more. And then the third point, and this is the point I really wanted to bring out, we need to imagine more and talk more about that world we need to be hurrying towards, the world of 2030, where we will be far along greening our cities, far along nature-based solutions, far along. And we don't talk about it enough, but we won't get that urgency of really wanting to get there unless we imagine more and talk more and realize more where we want to get to. 
an outsider observing Japan in 1650 might have predicted imminent social collapse triggered by catastrophic deforestation. Demand for timber during Japan's Edo period, a consequence of mass migration and a rapidly growing peacetime population, devastated nearly all of the main island's forests. Yet the country's military leaders recognized the problem and quickly established a forestry management system, encouraging people to plant Japanese cypress and cedar seedlings by the tens of thousands. Complete ecological disaster was avoided. A few centuries later, during the Second World War, these forests were once again cut down. As demand for timber rose during post-war reconstruction, the government again made quick work of reforesting with cypress and cedar trees. Ecological disaster was avoided again. Still, even today, the consequences of these two near-catastrophic collapses are evident in the monoculture of Japanese treescape, once one of the most diverse in the world. Over 44% are Hinoki cypress and Sugi cedar species. I'd like to just transition our discussion towards a key area that's incentivizing individuals, governments, and businesses alike in the climate change fight, which is the economy. So, Laurent, you've been championing、um, sustainable investing at Picte for well over a decade now. In terms of where you see this whole sustainable finance industry or sustainable finance in general, where do you see that developing, or how do you see that developing over the next few years? I hope that you know in five years we're not going to talk about sustainable finance anymore because it's going to be part of what we do. I think it is developing very handsomely in different shapes or forms. You have strategies that look at excluding you know the worst companies. You have、uh, strategies that look at accelerating the transition of those less good companies. You have thematic strategies. You have impact-driven strategies. You have a strong momentum on the fixed income side with the issuance of green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds, social bonds. And so forth. So I think the momentum is building very strongly. I think that again,、uh, regulation is accelerating that. I think the、uh, green taxonomy, which is happening in in Europe, is going to help to structure a bit that framework, without hopefully、uh, trying to structure it too much and to box it in. I think you need to let that develop the way it is.、Um, and as I said before, I think that what's happening in Europe, which is probably At the front end of those changes at the moment is going to be followed by other regions and probably、uh, the U.S., which which could really give a, a very different dynamics to 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 all this. So I think is that you know it is structural. It is not. It's not going to go.、Um, and everybody, anybody who actually doesn't believe in it and doesn't adapt to it, I think in our industry is going to be out of business in in a relatively short period of time. It was interesting what Laurel said about being affected professionally by the financial crisis, because I'm hoping, if you like, in my prisoner of hope mood, that we all will be affected by the experience of COVID. It has taken us out of our comfort zone. It's not done it equally at all. It has exacerbated the inequalities. But we're all in a different place, and we realise the fragility of our humanity. And I think there are. Four brief lessons that are really good to learn that relate to the climate crisis. And the first is that collective human behaviour can actually matter. It's what's preserving us as we now begin to roll out the vaccine, and we'll need collective changes of behaviour in order to move to that better world and do it in a hurry, hopefully. 
Secondly, government matters. That's an important lesson. There was far too much neoliberal belief in the free market, blah, blah, blah. No, government matters and government regulation matters. And we have to take that seriously. Thirdly, and very importantly, science matters. We're listening to the health scientists. We need to listen to the climate scientists. And the fourth lesson is a subtle one, but I think it's an important one. Compassion matters. We're seeing in every country, because it has affected people unequally, that there is a lot of caring about those worse off in the community, whether it's with food parcels, whether it's communities helping at local level. You know, it really is phenomenal how much that has opened up. And we hadn't that empathy. I think we're more open now. And that's very important because the 2030 agenda on the sustainable development goals, which also has to be part of our thinking, talks about leave no one behind. It talks about prioritizing the furthest behind first. And that sort of approach would help a lot going forward. Given your experience as a previous head of state, would you advise that stimulus packages, for example, be restricted or focused on green sectors? I think it would be really good if we can have much more aligning of packages. Even the EU that is rightly praised for the way it's going forward is not doing enough to align the recovery with making sure that there are incentives within it to go even greener, if I could put it that way, because it's not happening enough. The commitments, the nationally determined contributions, even of European countries, haven't yet gone far enough. We're not on, on course at all for where we need to be in 2030, where the scientists told us in their Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in October 2018, we have to reduce by 45% our global emissions. We're not on track at all for that. So using the recovery package stroke recovery into an alignment with that goal is incredibly important. Laura, can I get your views on this matter as well? So how well has ESG or will ESG endure a financial or pandemic-linked crisis? And are you seeing a shift, for example, in people's thinking on this matter? Yeah, I think that first, from an investment perspective, ESG tilted and environmental tilted strategies have delivered in terms of performance. So that's obviously one thing which is important as investors. Second, we've seen flows accelerating in those type of strategies. I mean, as far as we're concerned, 80% of the revenues we generated are linked to uh, ESG tilted strategies in 2020. Third, I think that the crisis has, in a way, rebalanced the agenda with a better equilibrium between the environment and, and, and social implications. As, as Mary was saying before, it has shed the light on the growing inequality. And I think that's extremely important uh, before we're talking only about the environment and perhaps ignoring the link and ignoring the impact it has on, on society. And last but not least, I think that businesses, you know, to survive the crisis and to be prepared for the next crisis, have to realize, and some of them have realized, that they cannot be built for pure efficiency anymore. They need to be built for resilience. They need to be built to be able to sustain the next crisis. And I think all of those factors are creating a, a structural shift in the mind of, of people in that you need to adapt to the new dynamics. Last question to each of you is, what would be your parting advice to our audience in their day-to-day -day life that would generate the most change in the climate fight? I actually would fall back on those three steps and make it personal, get angry with those who aren't taking their responsibility seriously enough. And in, in particular, imagine this future more locally where you are. Imagine what it'd be like. We saw some of it during COVID 
The lockdown meant the air was cleaner. We heard the birds in a way we hadn't. I think people have re-found nature in a way all over the world. You know, they're, they're, they're confined more locally, but they're finding out what are the richness, riches of their locality. So I, I think if anything, we need to emphasize that world we need to be hurrying towards so that we put pressure on those who have more responsibility to help us get there. Cameron? Uh, well, Karen, I love Mary's three-part structure. So uh, rather than reinvent what is a very, very smooth and well-functioning wheel, I will just say that the amplification feature is important on all three dimensions. So, so make it personal, find your voice, share the vision, but then make sure that it's projected and as many other people join in as possible just to, to maximize the impact of your actions. Yeah, I think I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I think, uh, you know, with the power of technology today and, and the echo that technology can provide, which was not the case 20 years ago, I would say do not, you know, underestimate your individual power as a consumer to change things. All that remains to be said is thank you very, very much indeed for coming on today, Mary, Cameron and Laurent. Thanks well, thank very much, you. Jerry. It's been a good discussion. Yes. I enjoyed it too. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Cameron Hepburn, Mary Robinson, and Lauren Ramsey, moderated by Kieran Nanda. This series is brought to you by the Big Tech Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Cristodulu, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.